Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whenever you're listening to this. This is Molecules and Shit, and this is a science podcast. I'm your co-host, P-Funk, at P-Funkin' Around on Twitter. And I'm joined by your host, Koki Negra. Doctor? Sir? How's your week been? It's been a week. It has been another week. Congratulations, you survived. How about that? Yes. Uh, but it actually, it, it's a good cap to the week because we have a special show today. We have a guest joining us. We have uh, Dr. Layton joining in. Sir. Hello. Hello. Uh, how are you doing this weekend? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Just uh, just got in, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. Sun's out. It's nice outside. Oh, okay. Were you traveling this last week? No, thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so... For the people who don't know you, who aren't aware, uh, why don't you give us like just a quick overview of uh, your background, uh, you know, your career path, you know, how are you connected to uh, Coquina Negra? Okay, well, let's see. I am, I, I would say my career is very, uh, it's very different. It's not the norm. Mm -hmm. So I am, I have a doctorate in, in physics. Uh, focusing in the field on the field of laser technology, laser science, from Hampton University, mm. and I came. Uh, I got my general, my bachelor's in physics from North Carolina A and T. So I am an HBCU product. Yay! Uh, <laughs> yay. <laughs> uh, from there, I worked in private industry for seven to eight years at um, ITT Advanced Engineering. Um, NASA Langley mm. and DRS Technologies. And at some point while I was at ITT uh, watching photons fly across the table, I realized that, hey, I need to change my life because I am just not feeling this anymore. Oh. So I, um, after uh, a drunken rage and um, um, drunken realization, I realized that it was time for me to start looking into other options. And that's when I came across the American Association for the Advancement of Science, hmm. uh, AAAS, and um, applied the first time, didn't get in, but the second, but you know, you never, if this is something you want to do, you always try again. And so the second time I got in and uh, became a program developer in nanotechnology at the Office of Naval Research. And I did that for a few years. And what does that, uh, uh, that entail, just generally? What's a program developer? So program developer is we are trying to develop a program in nanotechnology to address these problems and to make these objectives. We're trying oh, to push okay. uh, the, the science along. At that time, nanotechnology was not as developed as it, was, as it is today. Mm -hmm. So for me, as a program developer, I moved around the country talking to different researchers, going to different conferences, seeing, um, one, what were the what were the questions that the field was dealing with? Two, who were the researchers um, um, that were addressing those questions? And who were the top people in the field? Mm -hmm. um, and after that, I would approach them and say, hey, I've got money. And are you interested in uh, collaborating with the Office of Naval Research? And they were always interested because uh, you had money. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Most, all, almost all of them. And they would, and what happened, what was good about that is they would always say, Hey, I've got a friend or there's this other person that's doing some interesting work. Maybe you need to go talk to them. And so mm -hmm. I would go talk to them and it would just grow from there. Um, another part of that was after I had, um, after about a year, two years, I brought them all together for a conference where we actually all sat down, presented work, um, connected, a few of the researchers together and you start talking about, hey, what are the main issues that you are dealing with and what are the issues that are coming up and what's the technology that, you know, we as P program developers, program officers in the Office of Naval Research, what's that technology that's coming up that we just don't know about that maybe we should start paying attention to? Mm -hmm. And they would always um, give us some kind of. Uh, there was always a, a a number of answers, and you know, one of the things that was very small at the time, um, but is big now, was synthetic biology. Um, 
And nobody at ONI really was focusing on that. And uh, I have, I'm proud to say that I was one of that was one of the things that came out of that workshop. So, uh, after that, I, I wanted to continue solving problems because as a physicist, that's just what we do. But I just didn't want to get back in the lab and um, found my way to the Institute for Defense Analysis or IDA, as we call it. If you don't know what IDA is, uh, think of RAND. Oh, okay. Uh, RAND um, is like our sister, um, re, um, FFRDC. Yeah. Uh, and that stands for Federally Funded Research and Development Center. And what we do is basically address problems that the government, that there's no right or wrong answer on, um, address problems that the government is kind of trying to figure out what to do with. And that's been where I've been for the last 10 years. You get in there and... Um, I guess I got, I really enjoyed my work. Been to Iraq, been to Korea. I've been inside the government um, a couple of times and I've really gotten to talk and look at a lot of different problems. So nice. that's what brings me here now. So uh, in you, as your, your role as a program developer, it sounds like you did a lot of sort of uh, canvassing and surveying of the field. Um, yes. What what counts as like a like a win for you guys? Like, how do you kind of measure your progress or your successes? Like, what does that look like? Well, since I was in the uh, R and D or uh, technology development uh, level one, uh, for us it was just to develop the technology. We weren't really looking for uh, are we going to be able to put this into a military system or something. It is like, hey, this technology is 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 being is is coming up it might be advantageous for the u.s government in the future we need to help it along mm -hmm. so for us wins always were like first finding good researchers uh to making sure that they had publications if you if we gave you money and you just didn't publish anything then we just felt that that was not not a good use of our money mm, so much. publications what's even better is citations and uh a huge thing is uh, if it eventually at some point finds itself in a system uh, a military system in the future then that would be awesome but uh, that's not what we were really focused on. We were like, what is the state of the art today? Um, the researcher that's addressing it, the publications and citations is what I was uh, really hope looking for. Those were wins for me. Were you guys also look so, at um, inclusion or acceptance in like uh, traditional markets, like com commercial markets? Like if someone actually were we looking at if, if if it found its way into commercial markets. Um, that that was a win, but that's much further along. Much I would say that was further along. That's mm. further along. We're at TD level one, uh, just at research and development. When you get into applied science, so we are basic research. Then if it gets into more applied areas, um, if it makes it to applied areas, then that's then that's where you might see it in commercial areas. But um, that's not what I was really focused on. Got you. Okay, and then you said now you're at uh, IDA, and how does that uh, sort of does your role? Is it a similar role that you're you're playing there as a program developer, or what, what do you say are the big differences? No, I'm a research staff member, so I went back to my roots, um, just doing research, but in a different way. Um, I so for example, when I first arrived there, um, I was looking at what is what are the strategic uh, issues that the United States is going to be dealing with from in the future? Mm -hmm. So that was a question that we were dealing with at the at the time. What are the trends that we are seeing happening around the globe? What's emerging? Um, what are the, and what does that mean for the U.S. in the future? Um, then the U.S. at the time was having problems with improvised explosive devices in Iraq and they needed a team of people to go out and start trying to think of tools and ways that we could address those things. Oh. And so I was picked um, along with a number of people to go out and I was out there for four months and we actually looked at a problem and um, 
we would uh, we wouldn't did never go out to any of the sites. We would be brought back some of the materials, some of the information, and everything, and discussions. You know, we we address things like that. Um, so you address you talk, you look at a lot of different problems, and every so often when you get burned out or not burned out, but you want to do something completely different, um, they send you into the Pentagon to um, either run a program or work on a team or do something. So um, my first foray into that world, I uh, worked for um, uh, CAPE, uh, data, data, resor- data, data Research, and worked in IW, which is Irregular Warfare at the time. Mm. Then I went back to IDA and then just recently came, went back to the Pentagon and just recently got back. And I was working as a program director for the International Industrial Base Collaboration, where I was trying to develop uh, collaborations between um, the U.S., Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom from any dealing with science, dealing with industry, dealing with all kinds of things. So that was that really stretched me. Mm-hmm. It forced me to think in a lot of different ways. And uh, those are things that I'm very happy I was able to do. And how would you say, because early on you said that you were frustrated with the sort of lab work that you were doing early on. Uh, what's the biggest difference between your career now and your career in the lab? And you know, what, why do you find this uh, more fulfilling? I would say that um, I would say that I find this more fulfilling. I actually see not all the time, but I actually see some uh, fruits of my labor. Some fruits of my labor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just publications, but like in Iraq, I was actually saving lives, mm-hmm. and that that's actually really huge when you realize that something that's been going on that's been really hurting uh, the people in the field. Um, you're actually able to come up with a solution that actually removes that threat, and suddenly um, people's lives are, you know, are, are I mean, people aren't, you aren't losing as many soldiers in the field. And that that's very very um, fulfilling. For me, I just when I left, um, I did not want to go as deep as I used to go, um, and when you're in the lab day in and day out and um, as I said watching photons fly across the table and trying to think of new unique ways it, it just after a while you're just like I, I've got to do something different I want to do something different so you're looking at maybe too narrow a slice too deeply for too long is that kind of what it is right. okay. I think that's a good way of putting it okay. I'm going to use that in the future <laughs> okay <laughs> see I don't even have a science background I can be smart too Koki see but of course you can. <laughs> I hate when she uses that tone. But, mm-hmm. Well, okay, so we're going to go back to, you know, talking more about um, your PhD background and, and, and STEM education uh, as well. But we're going to delve into our stories because I think it's a good transition point. Um, I saw this article run by on, uh, on science uh, talking about peer review of methodology um, may yield benefits for science. So basically what the the article goes into, uh, it's written by, um, what's her name? Uh, Lucina, Lucina? Yeah, Lucina Udin. So she's a, a scientist herself, and she was talking about this new process uh, for journal applications um, called registered reports. And basically what that entails is sending your methodology ahead of time before you've even done any, any work or research to the journal and having that peer reviewed before you begin your study. And I'm just gonna read a little bit of it to kind of uh, give everyone a, a little bit of background. Uh, it says, everyone seems to be talking about how to increase the rigor, reproducibility, and transparency of science. One interesting effort is registered reports, a type of journal article in which researchers submit their experimental protocol for peer review before doing the experiments. The idea is that sound research questions and high quality methodology should be more highly valued than mere novelty or provocative results. The practice may help prevent questionable research practices such as poor statistics or cherry picking results. Although the ultimate goal is to improve the quality of scientific research, there are benefits for researchers as well. 
the journals that accept registered reports guarantee publication regardless of whether hypotheses are confirmed. This helps researchers avoid the temptation to fish for significant findings. So I thought this was interesting, especially in light of, uh, I think it was, I think it was this year, actually. I don't know if we covered it on the show, but there was a, a long form article talking about how a lot of the uh, sciences, like in psychology specifically, but other ones as well, where reproducibility was really low and people were, you know, it was calling into question a lot of the current practices and they found a lot of people were, as she says, cherry picking, you know, just trying to get published because publication is such a, a benchmark for whether you, you know, get tenure, whether you stay on staff, whether you get funded. And it was causing, you know, the incentives were such that people were massaging numbers or using questionable practices in order to get published. So as two, as two scientists, what do, what do you guys think about this? Layton, do you have any comments? That's a deep For me, it's... I, I understand what she's trying to say, but I almost feel that, you know, going through the research, developing your methodology, uh, seeing what other people are doing, thinking about how that would work with your program, that's just a part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I, I, I see what it's, I see what she's trying to do, but I just don't think that uh, it's an interesting idea. But I, I don't know how useful it, it would be. Uh, also, there's this thing about you having to submit your methodology to some um, unknown group and uh, get approved. Um, what's wrong with the group that's at your university, the PhD program? Isn't that what you're supposed to do anyway? Um, when I was doing my PhD program, I mean, that is what we had to do. There's some rigor as far as being able to stand before a group of people and say this is what I'm going to do also you all I'm assuming you've been you've gone to different conferences and you explain your methodology at those conferences and get picked apart I do distinctly remember going to a meeting once and explaining my methodology and I got trashed Mm. and it was a humbling experience but it was a very it was a good experience for me because I realized I wasn't thinking as deeply as I should about my problem. Mm-hmm. So I, I just, and then, and then this, 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 these, this method that you can just pick and choose ways of doing things. And that automatically valid, this, this validates what you're going to do. I, I just have problems with it. I don't know, Koki, what do you think? Yeah, I, I have all those problems and a couple more. Mm. Um, I do not like this idea one bit mm-hmm. um, because, first of all, this is this is sort of a, a new step in peer review. Yes. And so I've already been in a situation where you submit something and they say uh, this is not acceptable for this, that or the other thing. And you see your methods in somebody else's paper. Yes, yes. Um, and so I, I've, I've, this didn't happen to me, but while I was a graduate student, this happened to my PI. She went to a meeting. She discussed, you know, her data and her hypothesis, and it showed up in somebody else's paper. Wow. So the idea, and, you know, the whole point of peer review is it's someone who knows what you do, so it's likely a competitor. So anybody who could review what I'm doing is probably doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. You tell them what your methods are, and then you see them six months later in you know a large lab where they can pick it up and run with it while you're still waiting to get grant money. Right. Yes. Um, you know, so this I do not like this idea at all. Not for the kind of science I do. There, there may be a place for it somewhere, but not in my life. So let's let's take a step back then. Um, what do you guys think about the problem it's trying to solve? Do you think it's as significant or? as uh, urgent as they make it out to be, which is the, the sort of cherry picking and, and number massaging that uh, people are talking about, at least in, in recent articles. Do you see that as an actual problem or do you think it's being overblown? I don't know what the statistics are. I would like to, before I make it, before I would answer that question, I would like to know what the statistics are. I think you're going to have outliers all the time. You're going to have people who are going to want to bend the rules or cheat in order to make some money. But I just don't think that 
is indicative of uh, the research community as whole. I agree. I also think that this this discussion about reproducibility and how you know the the scientists are fundamentally unreliable is something that is more political than it is real. So yeah. this is the kind of conversation you hear from people on the hill. Um, we we talked about this. I know we talked about this some maybe last last year about how there were some uh, psychology studies that just couldn't be reproduced. Yeah. But, you know, they were things that were happening in the 1970s and they tried to reproduce them on children in the new millennia. The, mm. the kids aren't even the same anymore. True. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think this is this is very much like um, why we have to have new IDs for voting to solve a problem that we don't really have. Okay. So, so do you think this is a solution without a problem? Is that basically it? Yes, I do. And okay. I think it the the danger here is that your intellectual property, that is the way you have decided to solve this problem scientifically, becomes something that gets out into the public. I don't even like preprints. Um, but the idea that I've come up with a novel method for something and I have to submit it to some journal, I don't. And, and these days, you can't even tell if the journal is legit until you're halfway through the process. Um, I'm going to submit it to somebody, and they're going to say, oh, yes, you should do this, or no, I think you should do so-and-so-and-so. That is what your colleagues are for. That is why you go to scientific meetings. Okay. All right. So, I mean, I saw um, – I just did a quick search uh, on reproducibility, and it uh, looks like Nature um, Journal – the journal Nature did a, a survey – uh, of scientists just trying to gauge what they thought about this quote-unquote reproducibility crisis. That's what they're calling it now. And they surveyed 1,500 researchers. They said 52% said it is, yes, it's a significant crisis. And 38% said a slight crisis. And 3% said no crisis. So it sounds like there's something out there. Uh, maybe this article is defining it improperly. And so maybe it's not getting at what people are, are looking at. But it sounds like part of the well, part of the, the problem that she doesn't address is that people don't like to produce reproducibility studies. So I think there there is a practice where um, someone will just redo what someone else has done just to see if they can get the same <clears throat> results and then try to get that published. Is that is that something that people typically do? Well, I can speak only for microbiology mm -hmm. and I can tell you that it is always better to be the second person who does something than the first person. Mm, okay, why is so, that? Explain that. Well, because, okay, so the first person has to fight through the re reviewers. And they've come up with this idea. And, you know, I, I've been in a study section before. I know how this goes. There are people in the room and they're like, he's never going to be able to do that. Or how did she come up with this? And, you know, so you have to fight every which way to be the first person. Now, then you come out with something, your paper is beautiful, and then there are 500 Me Too's. Mm. And the Me Too's are much easier to get published. So it's always better to be the second person. Okay. So that probably I, is I an issue. Go ahead. For, for me, for me, I when I think about this, it's the hard science is I don't think we have this problem. Mm. You think I my think science is not hard? <laughs> The soft sciences, they have this problem. And, and, and I think in any scientific in issue, um, you've got to def you define what your limits are, what your parameters are, everything. I mean, that's in hard sciences and soft sciences. And I think you're going to do some kind of experiment on kids or children or something in one town. And you think you're going to re reproduce the same results in another town? Mm. There's not, there is no physical constant. There's nothing that's constant there. I, mm -hmm. I just think that, you know, different, different, and I'm speaking, this is just an opinion, but different, different areas produce different types of people. And therefore they're running the same experiment on those two people. You're going to get different results. Mm. That's how I feel about it. So it might anyway. be more a problem of how do you kind of universalize your results as opposed to. Um, studies not being reproducible. It might just be that your findings might be valid, but just not universal. You, you can't apply it to the, the broader population. Is that, you, you think that's the actual issue? 
I certainly think that is part of it. And I think, you know, we sort of, because we have sort of 24-hour news, we just want to talk about something. And, mm-hmm. hey, this study did such and such and such, where often, you know, and we've said this many times, often what you'll find is if you actually read the whole thing, you see where the limits are, uh, just like Leighton said, um, and you know this is what you're studying. It's a very small piece mm-hmm. of the puzzle. And, you know, it's valuable and it's important, but it's not necessarily universal. Hmm. Okay, so it sounds like a big thumbs down for this. <laughs> uh, for us, yeah, I think so. Okay. All right. So I mean, we'll we'll definitely keep an eye on this because I do keep seeing it uh, pop up, just sort of this, and it, it does go to a little bit what we were talking about last week, Koki, about um, uh, this. The show hasn't gone out yet, but we were talking about the uh, question of authority. So people aren't really respecting sort of expertise anymore and that's just kind of a general problem that's affecting our institutions you know more broadly is that people just don't trust that someone who has experience and uh, knowledge in a subject that they can trust their assessment of things and that they think that their assessment is just as valuable you know no matter what their background or or education and that's kind of affecting the way that you know uh, elections you know turn out and, and the way that we select people to you know run different things so at the, yeah, at the I guarantee time, if you look on Twitter right now, everybody's a legal expert now that we know oh, yeah. what uh, is going on in the Mueller investigation. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, well, my cousin's a lawyer. And he said, <laughs> it's like, OK, all right. But he's a corporate attorney. He has no idea what's going on with this criminal, this criminal uh, you know, designation. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we're going to keep an eye on this going forward. But uh, speaking of expertise. Uh, I did see this other article that was published in Science. Um, It says that the current administration is emphasizing a workforce training in their new version for STEM education. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's see. Uh, The U.S. government needs to partner with industry and community organizations to train more Americans for jobs in an increasingly high-tech work environment. That's the key message in a new five-year strategic plan for science, technology, engineering, and math education released today by the U.S. President blah, blah, blah administration. Uh, (laughs) The plan, which looks across the federal government's entire $3 billion investment in STEM education by more than a dozen agencies, emphasizes the importance of computational literacy, the 45 agencies to be more transparent in tallying participation in STEM programs by minorities and women, which it acknowledges face barriers to success. That's a surprise. Mm -hmm. At at the same time, the report largely dismisses several key priorities of the former president's administration, including the need to train more STEM elementary and secondary school teachers, strengthen the STEM curriculum, and improve undergraduate and graduate instruction to prevent would-be scientists and engineers from leaving the field. So, just on just on that, what do you think about uh, focusing STEM education more on uh, workforce training? What is, does that sound right to you? What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I I am concerned mm-hmm. because I wonder if this is at the expense of regular sort of higher ed. Okay. Um, what do you mean? So, okay, so one of the things that that happened under the Obama administration is they wanted more people in in jobs, especially in STEM, and so what they focused on was community college. That's not a bad thing, but it shifted priorities, so it was much easier to get into an associate's degree and no help if you wanted to move on. Mm, okay. This looks to me, and I've I read the executive summary. This came out a couple days ago, so I read the executive summary, and I sort of thumbed through the the forty five page document, and a lot of it is about internships mm-hmm. and on the job training, and that that spells to me more of like a worker bee kind of thing, and that's yep. okay for some things. But if you're really going to be involved in science and technology, you better know your stuff. Mm. What do you think, Leighton? I fully agree. I completely agree with with her on that. I actually do think that um, 
I, I do I do agree with the fact that the uh, that maybe there could be some that there could be some uh, workmanship as internships things like that but in my opinion in college that already happens I guess they're trying to do this in high school and um, I think high school should really be about uh, expanding the mind being exposed to science technology uh, abstract it should be more about steam instead of stem that's what I always say mm-hmm. not just stem it should be steam it should be arts abstract things because that's really what opens up the mind as well so um, I, I, I I don't I don't necessarily I don't I have problems with it plus on top of that how much is this going to cost you know how are you going to build this out are you going you know and how does business um, play along with this I just think this is not a very well thought out program yeah and uh, the thing is as soon as I see sort of the partnerships that sounds like to me these are going to be companies coming in wanting someone to be trained exactly the way they want them to be trained well i mean they should do that themselves they should pay for that well yeah but that that has been an issue like so for example at one time i was instrumental in in the running of a biotech program Hmm. and you know we put together what we thought was a good education you know we prepared our students for the ability to learn new tasks when they you know got on the job but we we gave them you know sort of a broad education and so we would send them to some of these biotech companies and there are quite a few of them in in the you know rockville area and we started getting this well but i would like them to know this and i would like them to know that Mm -hmm. they basically wanted this program to be their training program instead of training their new employees right and That's I, not what an education is for. Well, I noticed that uh, also just coming out of high school and coming out of college, looking for internships and, you know, your first jobs is that less and less you used to, you know, hear your parents talk about it. There was always training programs and uh, internships and apprenticeships. And that's just all kind of been cut and faded, phased out. And now everyone's trying to push that onto the schools. The schools should be doing that. It should come out of the with the degree and they should automatically go on my assembly line and I shouldn't have to do any work or pay any investment. And that's kind of the and also, I think, philosophically, just the the role of high school has evolved because I think in the 70s and maybe in the 60s, I think it was more about apprenticeships. It was about, yeah, we're going to introduce you to some, you know, um, arts and sciences, but also, you know, we're going to train you on home finance and, you know, home economics. And and we're also going to have, you know, woodworking and and garage and shop and things like that. So we are trying to prepare you to be part of the workforce. And now that's also kind of moved more into the university and, you know, tertiary degrees. Well, I don't know. I think Votech still exists. Um, and, you know, it's been, it's been pumped up in the last decade, I would say. Um, it fell out of favor. You know, we all needed to do STEM and we all needed to take high-risk tests. And I think... You know, but the apprenticeships have to be for something that exists. I mean, I get the spirit of what this this uh, plan is supposed to be, mm-hmm. um, but I, I think they missed the mark. Uh, you know, I looked at the at the chair. At, by the way, this came out of OSTP. We still do not have a director of OSTP. Yeah, he's acting. Uh-huh. Uh no, he, no, he's deputy chief of staff and assistant director. There is no director yet. Oh, okay. Um, but even when I look at at who's on, uh, Francis Collins from H from um, NIH and France uh, Cordova from NSF, they're part of it. But I don't recognize anybody else, and I usually know these people. Mm, well, a lot of them have uh, have left, and they haven't been replaced, right? Or they're lower level. Uh, employees so that I can't you know I can't tell you I just don't know these people Mm, well that actually gives me that lends concern that maybe this won't even this won't materialize into anything if you have you know lower level people working on it that means it's kind of probably a low priority right well no I I think for the fanfare that they they drew it out they mean to do this but I'm afraid that the same president who decided that Betsy DeVos should be over education, they if their mm. their plan for education, for STEM education, it scares me. It scares me. Mm, 
That's true. They're going to be company drones. That's that's what they're going to be. So, Layton, did uh, as going to an HBCU, did you participate in any apprenticeships, or you know, did you have any experience with those? Well, when I was at um, while I was at Hampton, um, before I actually started my research, a few of us had the opportunity to work in. Um, so we had our your graduate classes, but a few of us had the opportunity to also work at NASA Langley okay. and do some research in their labs. And we weren't really; it really wasn't specific. It was they, you know, you you found you found work. So I ended up. Uh, working with a man named uh, Waverly Marsh and um, and can't remember the other person's name, but uh, we were working on um, a major pro- task that uh, Langley was trying to address as far as um, atmospheric sensing. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, when it came time to take my comps and everything, you know that 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 project came away uh, that went away. But I mean, I picked up a lot of different skill sets that were useful for me when I actually started doing my PhD. So, I mean, for in that case, it was helpful, but that's much further along than, you know, being um, than high school. In high school, um, most, most of the time I was an inroads fellow. Most of the time people just didn't know what to do with me. Um, mm. I worked at IBM and I would say for the most part, all I did was sit in the chair and read because there was they did not know what to do with me. So there's this question of, you know, the utility of having high school students doing this, you know, doing this. Oh, maybe maybe it's different now, but then. Well, I'm not sure how much. I don't know if you're the same age as me or or older, but I definitely in high school had a they call it the, the MOTEP program minority organ tissue uh, transplant education program. Um, my internship didn't have anything to do with, um, uh, didn't have anything to do with tissue transplant, but I actually worked in an entomology lab mm-hmm. and uh, worked with mosquitoes. And actually the, the mentor that I had, uh, he basically walked me through the process of developing, doing background research uh, on mosquitoes. Um, so I had to do my own research and I'd come to him and then he would talk about like, well, what do you want to test or what do you want to try to do? And then he walked me through the methodology. And then once I had the methodology, he kind of let me go. Uh, now, you know, I was doing it on my own, you know, kind of as a, as a novice, I'm sure I did a lot of things incorrectly, but at the same time, you know, it still gave me like a background and understanding of how that process works. And I did come out with data, uh, that I could present. Uh, so, I mean, there, there was a that was at the high school level, so I'd imagine that now it might it might even be more advanced. I was working at Walter Reed at the time doing that. So. Yeah, and your privilege is showing because that is you went to a very good private school. <laughs> oh well, I mean this wasn't through my school at all. Uh, this was just something you could apply to, you know, externally. It was it was actually run and by how Howard did University. You know about it? Uh, I don't know. My dad actually found it. I think. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, no, it wasn't through the school at all. It was completely separate. But uh, he, I think, you know, he just he he went to Howard Law, and so he, you know, knew some people, and they're like, oh, well, there's these things going on, and then he passed it to me. He's like, why don't you apply to this, and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's still privilege. Okay, but not through school. <laughs> I mean, I guess, but but I'm just saying those programs do exist, and so um, you know, it might even, it might even be more so now than than then. Well, I think there's a lot of different pieces to that. I mean, it's the execution of the program. It's access to the program. It's being able to get people who want to invest in that program, actually having people who want to take those students on mm-hmm. and, and work with them. Yeah. Um, a lot of things have to come together. And that's a great deal of work. Yeah. That is a it's great an, deal of work. It's an enormous amount of work. And in these days, in these times, everybody's on that it feels like everybody's on that hamster wheel right now, just trying to make it through. That's true. And I mean, this seems like this program is kind of perpetuating that they really just want to make the hamster wheel bigger and get more hamsters on the hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't want any more critical thinkers. It's like, we just need more hamsters. Why don't you just make yeah. more hamsters? <laughs> so, yeah. So, and, you know, for, for, and this, this seems exactly like what you would expect for somebody who thinks we should run government like a business. Yeah. So we're, we're going to get more worker bees. Yeah. That's what, what a business, business needs. What do businesses think we need? What are we doing right, businesses? Why don't you tell yeah. us? And then we'll just do that. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So, I mean, uh, it is better than I expected, but certainly not anything I'm real happy with. Mm. Well, this kind of ties in also to our, our main topic. So, um, Leighton, you mentioned that you, you didn't really feel that, uh, you know, your lab work uh, was was fulfilling and then you wanted to move on and use your skills elsewhere. Um, how do you feel about uh, your doctorate and the process for earning the doctorate? Uh, how do you feel it served you? Well, you know, when I wanted to get at my PhD, I wanted to be a, a university professor. I, I mean, I wanted to be in school. I wanted to be, I had this very romantic idea of what the PhD program was. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to get my PhD. I'm going to break into new technology. I'm going to cultivate and work with new minds and i'm (laughs) going to produce these unbelievable people that i will send out into the world and they will do the same thing that Mm -hmm. is what was in my head Mm -hmm. all the way up to when i um all the way up until i actually started the phd program and i saw that it was completely different Mm. and even though you know a lot of politics a lot of issues but once when I was working at Lawrence Livermore Labs, we were doing some uh, interesting work with uh, uh, some la- uh, some uh, laser tech laser laser science mm-hmm. work, uh, and I was talking to this guy, one guy, and he was like, "Yes, I have been a postdoc for like eight years." <laughs> and is, is and that, is that, that a bad was thing? like. A, I- that check. And then I met another guy. He was like, oh, yeah. I was like, well, I'm only planning on doing a postdoc for a year or two. And he was like, oh, no. I'm, you know, to get into this, you've got to do it for like four or six. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, hell no. <laughs> okay. So for, for the us, us newbies who, who stopped at the, the, the MA level, what does that mean? Is that a lot? Is that standard or what should it be? What? Uh, when you get your PhD, uh, a postdoc is you go work in a lab, you will work with somebody and you gain extra skills. You work, mm-hmm. and, and this is just so that you can actually find an associate or a, a assistant position, professorship position at a university somewhere. Okay. Uh, but when I started seeing uh, these people who are working from uh, two, four to six years, uh, um, that was a gut check. And then when you start realizing that, hey, you know, life goes on without you. And that this was a good, uh, I'll give you an example. When I was in my PhD program, one of the students that I taught um, graduated. Um, and then I was, it was like two or three, three years later, I'm in my, still in the PhD program. He comes back and he has He's, he's like, I'm working at this place. I just got married and everything, and we just bought a house. And then uh, two more years later, he comes back and says, hey, you're still here? This is what I'm doing. And I'm just realizing wow. that life is moving on. Yeah. You're move- and you're losing a lot mm-hmm. um, by staying in a program. I mean, my, my PhD program from bachelor's to um, PhD was seven years. And, and um, I sometimes wonder, and I still sometimes question, um, if I would have stopped at the master's level, would I be better off now? What would have changed? And I don't know if a lot would have changed. Now, I will say at IDA, uh, to be a research staff member, most of most of the people, you have to have a PhD. However, there are quite a few people walking around there with just master's degrees, but with a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. So... As far as the uh, the cost, the financial cost of getting a PhD, of course it's paid for, but the money that you lose because you're not working and you're not able to put money away for retirement, you, you know that. Mm. In addition to the fact of, uh, I know a number of people who have bounced from university to university and they've never gotten tenure. Um, I'm really gonna need you to get off my toes about now. <laughs> Wait, 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 what you mean? What, wait, what are you saying? Um, yeah, I did all that stuff, and I left a university without tenure. Um, I postdoc'd for like five years. Mm. I'm sorry, I didn't know, Koki. <laughs> we we should have talked before, but no, I mean, it's just all those things, and I'm just like, you know what? If you're going to get your PhD, 
some people are just getting a PhD just to get a job. I was like, maybe you need to really think that through. Well, like uh, you, getting like, a PhD to get to a university, then you better have a good plan too. Because I just sometimes wonder what the usefulness of it is now. Okay. So um, just to clarify, so is five years a long time for a postdoc? Or should it be more like two years? Um, so your standard postdoc is should be about two years. Oh, okay. But I had multiple postdocs. Ah, okay. You know, I, I had a lot of things going against me. There are not a lot of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are not a lot of black people. And I happen to be a black woman. And, you know, like I was the last person to get a real job in my in my graduate program. Mm. Um, you know, I don't complain about that because I, I wound up spending a year on the Hill where I met Layton and several other people that, you know, have become really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would never say that I shouldn't have done it. Um, I'm sort of happy more or less with what my life, life has become. However, um, if you just wanted to do research and work at the bench and that would make you happy, I would say get a master's and do your research and enjoy your life. So, okay, taking that into account, Leighton, you mentioned that one of the jobs that, uh, that you had required a PhD. What, what is the impetus behind that? What, what skill are they looking for that PhDs uniquely have that a master's wouldn't have? Why do they do that? I think that's just, I think you're referring to the Institute for Defense Analysis. I think that is just, they're looking for subject. Well, I guess the reason for you getting a PhD is to say, hey, I am, one, I can learn, but two, I'm a subject matter expert on this topic. Okay. No one can, I can hang with the best of them on this topic. And I think that's why uh, these FFRDCs acquire PhDs. However, you don't get to work on that topic forever. You have to move to other topics. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to delve into that topic as long as you would like to, to say, I'm the subject matter expert. Sometimes you get moved off of topics very, uh, off of tasks very quickly. So, you know, you can, I think that's why that's, I think that's why ID, IDA and other FFRD say, say, uh, look for PhDs. Mm. And would you say that they should stick with that, or do you think that's just antiquated? That they should just look for experience and in, in actual, you know, publications? Or I don't believe in absolutes. I, I, I believe I don't believe that there's a silver bullet. I think looking for PhDs is one thing, but I think you need to take into account the entirety. I think a master's level with experience behind it um, can be just as valuable as a person with a PhD. Mm. Okay. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Kofi? Um, I think that is that's entirely possible. I think um, it really depends because either way you do it, there's going to be something that you don't care to have to put up with. Um, I always used to tell my students, you're going to work hard now or you're going to work hard later, but you're going to work hard. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it really depends. Like I said, I am not sorry I did it. But I can certainly see other paths to a lot of things. Like the job I have now doesn't require a PhD. Hmm. So actually, that's a that's a good follow up question. So for both of you, you both have a wealth of experience, and you're, you're given fields right now, and you've both run through the the gauntlet of a PhD program. Um, assuming you're fulfilled with you know your your current career path, how would you have structured it differently? If you're coming out fresh out of a university bachelor's program. How would you structure your, your, your higher learning to get where you are now? What would be the ideal path? Would it be what you did already, or would you do something different? I guess we'll start with uh, Leighton. Wow, that's a hard question. Because um, that assumes that I don't, I mean, that is, I had perfect knowledge, then. Right, um, exactly. I, I, assuming, I would... you know, all the knowledge you have and experience you have right now. Um, and assuming that you know you're happy with where you are, how would you get where you are from a bachelor? How would you guide yourself in the past to get where you are now, with the least amount of financial exposure and, and, and uh, maximizing the benefit? 
that's a rough question. <laughs> that is a very hard question. Uh, I'm going to get a stab at it, and I think this is going to be a 60% answer to what you're to the question you're asking. Mm -hmm. But I think I would have probably stopped initially with my mm -hmm. master's mm -hmm. and immediately uh, uh, gone into an, the area that I was I was most interested in at that time. Um, and then after I had developed the passion in that area, then maybe I would have gone on and gotten my doctorate. Um, since I since I realize now the university life was not for me, uh, that's what I would have done. Um, but I can also put a caveat on that, that I hear a lot of people who uh, try to go back for their PhD and because of life and other things, they just can't finish it. So mm. that's just a hard thing. I was always told, uh, and I think I will tell my kids if they ever decide to go for a PhD program, you're going to do it. You just go straight through, get it done. Mm. You know, um, if you're not entirely sure, um, then stop with your master's. Stop at least with a master's and then figure out uh, your next move. Mm -hmm. Either way, you have to have a plan. And I think that's what, I guess that's how I'm going to answer that question. I would have sat down and, and, and tried to develop a better plan. Mm. I think that's what it is. It's not about what I would do now. It, I, at that time, I would have developed a better plan, A, B, C, D, to get where I was going. Okay. Koki? I'm sorry, I just had a cat catastrophe here <laughs> yeah he really wants to be on the show um i think you know the one thing i would say that i feel like i did wrong um is once i had a pi who clearly was not interested in my success mm. i should have walked okay. so i wound up sort of in in uh in limbo for several years that i could have been producing papers oh, and wow. could have been moving on um, but you know I'm of that generation and culture where you just you don't you can't fight every battle you know I would be the angry black woman and you know I just I think I took too much bullshit mm. that's a, also a really hard thing to explain to black families especially of that generation quitting under any circumstances even if it makes sense Telling, explaining to your parents or you know your elders that yeah I'm gonna quit this because it's not working and do this and they're like why are you quitting don't quit <laughs> well I mean quitting's I always bad you know? quit. I wouldn't have quit science I just right. that postdoc I should have just walked away from exactly and even explaining that rational decision I think you know I think there's a lot of things that I probably should have backed off on and said oh, you know maybe I shouldn't do that I should probably do this instead this isn't really working for me but explaining yes I'm quitting this but I think this is better sometimes you, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to formulate those those words for your elders because they're just like well you know, we've invested all this in you you should stick with it and get through it like eh. you know you can do anything don't quit <laughs> it's yeah well I, you know, I, I i will say that there is a lot of value in finishing something it's 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 just it needs to be finite in length and you need to be able to put a time stamp on it mm. um i would say I, could, I think all of us can point to something in our lives where we said we could have quit, uh, but we should have quit sooner. But I think there is a lot of value in completing something. There are a lot of things from high school all the way up to college, to graduate school, that I wish I would, that I said, oh, I don't want to do this. But I, I see a lot of value in that I saw it through. Mm. I think that puts a lot of character. But mm. I, but I, I, th so it's, I, I think it's not an absolute. I think it's, you just... There's a very fine line that you've got to decide. This is how long I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do. And if at each point I'm going to reevaluate and have and maybe seek other people's help in reevaluating moving on. And then I better have plan B in place when I decide to quit. That is exactly it. <laughs> mm. Hmm. Okay, well that's a lot of a lot of guidance for anyone, any would-be, uh, you know, higher education takers out there. Um, these people have a lot of experience um, and a lot of education, and they know what they're talking about. So, seek men I would say seek mentorship seems to be a theme that's I'm, I'm hearing from both of you. You definitely, oh, you definitely need experience guidance if you're gonna 
take on something like this, you definitely can't just you know drive it on yourself because you will you can wind up in a place where you've done all the right things, but you're just in a place where people don't value your your input or don't just see interest in you know investing in you their time and and their and their knowledge. So you kind of have to make sure you have that in place for yourself or seek it out. Yeah, and I think that's a lot easier than it used to be. Mm. You know, we, we have different ways of connecting now than we did in the 90s when I was trying to make this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Internet makes all things possible and also makes a lot of things terrible. But <laughs> that, Exactly. That's it. Mm-hmm. It is a tool. And if you use it as such, you know, you may be OK. Exactly. All right. So after that uh, bit of heavy discussion, uh, we're coming to a close. So I just we're going to go to our. Um, possibly our last of the year catch these hands 2018 where we talk about the animal kingdom and how we need to stop messing with them because uh they are out to get us and they're tired of taking our shit so uh this is a an article i came across is actually one of the more tragic ones but i felt it was a psa that we need to share with people because there's too many cartoons and animated series out there trying to make you think that these animals are your friend and they are not um a Florida couple took a dream trip to Zimbabwe, then came the hippo attack. Kristen and Ryan Yaldor planned an elaborate vacation to South Africa and Zimbabwe, complete with safaris, a drum and dinner show, and a canoe trip near Victoria Falls to celebrate Kristen's 37th birthday. What the Odessa couple didn't anticipate was the protective mother hippopotamus and her young calf hiding under the water as they floated down the Zambezi River with two tour guides. Before they could react, the mother hippo swam under the couple's canoe, threw it in the air. Ryan was able to swim to a nearby island, but the multi-ton animal dragged Kristen under the water, its jaws snapping down her leg and breaking her femur. Ooh! Yeah, it literally drug her for filth. Uh, Kristen was able to escape, but it would be another hour before a medical helicopter arrived, Ryan said, and 13 more before she arrived at a hospital in South Africa. She remains in intensive care. That's a long day, y'all. That is a long day. First of all, she didn't escape. That hippo <laughs> let her go. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I know we're trying to give the woman some credit, but let's just be real here. <laughs> I think she's learned her lesson. Get your ass back up to the surface. <laughs> <laughs> Hippos are you notoriously know, aggressive. A story. Yeah. That brings up a, a story uh, I remember. When I, I was in South Africa helping my sister, ironically, with her PhD project. Mm. And we actually went to Zimbabwe and we did whitewater rafting down the Zambezi. And one thing that was always told to us leave those hippos alone. Mm-hmm. They are the number one killer of people, not lions, not hyenas, not wild dogs. It was hippos. People would think they were so cute, they'd mm-hmm. get close and those things would charge and those things can move fast. They would run people down, they would kill them. They would drag people into the water. Those things were mean, mm-hmm. leave, leave them alone. And I think people are put off because when you see a hippo in the zoo, it's usually standing still. And they just think, oh, it's an adorable, you know, huffle lump. It just kind of sits there. And, you know, we could take pictures of it. And it, it, it yawns. And look how adorable and big its mouth is. And they don't see it in its element. Very few people have seen a hippo in its element. I would argue few of us have seen any of these animals in their element. I saw a, an alligator one time. And it was just sort of laying around. Mm. And I thought, why is everybody scared of them? And then something moved on the riverbank. And that thing shot off like... Okay, never mind. I know. Mm-hmm. I got it. Mm-hmm. I got it. <laughs> but it only took me once, and I wasn't in that water. <laughs> yeah. Don't mess with Mother Nature. Yeah. I just, I, I just feel like I need to impress upon our listeners how hard it is to break a femur. Oh. This is the largest bone in your body. That's the one between the knee and your hip, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the one that tells you how tall you're going to be like that. That is a big bone. That is the big bone. And it doesn't sound like the hippo had any difficulty either. Yeah. I mean, 
your that's the biggest bone in your body. Like, how do you break that? And the doctor said that she was lucky because if one of those incisor teeth had hit her femoral artery, we would be planning a funeral today. Yeah, because that's the biggest artery. And she was underwater, and yeah, and her heart was probably going you know three miles a minute. So she clearly has an infection. I'm sure of that because she was in the water. Oh yeah, yeah, muddy, yeah, muddy water. All the animals defecating in it. Yeah, she. God knows mm, what's growing in there. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I would. I'm just gonna say uh, I'm gonna cross the Zambezi River off my list of things to do. Um, <laughs> I just feel like there are plenty of other ways I can occupy my time in Africa. Uh, I don't. I don't need to take that risk because literally they weren't even doing anything wrong. They were really just like moseying down the river, and it just happened to be close to a hippo calf. They had no idea what was happening. They literally just threw their boat out of the water for no reason. They were like, what is happening? <laughs> they weren't even like pestering the hippo, which, you know, sometimes we read stories like that where people like poke the bear, literally, and then get, you know, thrown eight feet in the air. Bear? What? Bear? Bear? That's bear. my kayak. Like, yeah. So we've seen those stories. This was literally a couple minding their business, obeying the, you know, the tour guide's command, staying in the boat. And the hippo said, nah, you're too close. You're too close, man. Personally, I think all things should be enjoyed from the car. But unfortunately, we've even seen stories where the lion just decides he's going to get in the in the Jeep with you. So uh, You know what? I, I'm going to say that's their fault still. Because why does the Jeep yes. have no doors or windows? What, 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 who <laughs> who does us. that? No, no. There's AC. We have air. Con- we live in the future. There's no reason you are in a Jeep with no windows or doors. And I don't know how the lion got in here. It's so weird. He opened the door. That's what he did. Well, that's the other thing. They and they open doors. So even I've seen them when they're in a, a covered, completely covered armored jeep, and, and the lion, the lion literally, literally just walked up and just kind of like put his paw in there and just said, "What's in here?" <laughs> just open the door. What's in the box? What's in the box? Why, why it wasn't locked? Also, I'm going to say that's their fault. Lock mm-hmm. your doors. I don't care that they don't have hands. Lock your doors. <laughs> You're going to respect these animals, or or they will they will teach you life lessons. I feel like they're getting smarter. I, I, I'm a little afraid of this evolution because they're really too smart now. I think that, no, I think there is, they're, they're just not scared of us anymore because we've inundated them. We've invaded their, their space that they see us so often that they're just like, oh, the, those hairless things over there. Ugh, they're so annoying. Sometimes they have the loud sticks, but other times, you know, you can just bite into them and they're kind of sour tasting. But <laughs> Not sour tasting. Well, I mean, they don't really often eat people, so clearly we don't taste good, but they're just... We're just the squishy, hairless things that they can't eat and we get in their way. <laughs> and so now they're not afraid of us anymore. They're just annoyed at our presence, like those elephants. Sour tasting, though. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just guessing that's what's going through their head. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you imagine if like turkeys that you couldn't eat were just kind of rummaging and walking through your house all the time? Like, what, it, what the hell is that thing? What is it doing yeah. here? You know. Yeah, when you when you look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> But yes, that, that, that should that should wrap it up for Catch These Hands 2018. I'll have to think about whether we go into Catch These Hands 2019 or if we consider another topic to explore. Um, apparently, animals might not be long for this world because I just read that uh, climate change is here, not coming, but here. And now it's just about mitigating. We can't really fix it anymore. So, Oh, that's, yeah. a, that's a Chinese hoax. There's no, oh. there's no climate change. Oh, that's, that's comforting. I, I'm, didn't you know that no i didn't know that i really thought that the scientists who who study this were really serious I, no it's just a chinese hoax ask your uh, president oh okay well whew, that's a relief because that was a really scary article i read this morning i don't worry about it no more all right <laughs> so uh since we're coming to a close uh layton um do you have any social media or if you wanted people to you know get in touch with you or uh if you want to interact with uh, any of the listeners uh, how should they get in touch with you Good question. Uh, <clears throat> you do have a Twitter account. <laughs> you can I always do. make you can always make uh, another one. We can I, put it in the show notes. You can connect with me on Aggie Man, A G G I E Aggie Man hmm. on, on my Twitter account. Okay, there you go. And I'll put make sure to uh, put that in the notes if you just want to message that to me, uh, so I can copy that down. And uh, yeah, so that's one way to get in touch with Layton and Koki. You want to remind people where to get in touch with you. Uh, you can find me at Koki Talks Trash uh, for non-scientific events. Uh, most of the time when I post things about 
stuff you need to know, like don't eat romaine lettuce. Still, don't eat romaine lettuce. Mm. Um, I'm at Coquie Negra. There you go. And uh, I am at P Funkin' Around on Twitter. And uh, if you want to uh, reach out to the show, it's at You Know Molecules. That's uh, capital U, K N O W Molecules. And that'll do it for the show. Thank you so much to Layton for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's a lot. It's the first time I think we've had. A, well, no, it's the sec. Is the second time we've had a physicist. Yes. Yes, it's the second physicist we've had. So we're we're on a good streak. We have a lot of biologists in the chamber, but the, you're the second physicist to to come on board. Uh, great. Physics trumps biology. Oh, Ooh. I don't think so. Oh, we didn't, okay. That is the next debate. So now he has to come back. We have to don't have that debate. Don't hurt you. No, we got to have that debate now. Uh, oh, I'm I'm excited. Would you be willing to join us again, Leighton? Oh, I would love to. Thank you. Okay, absolutely. Well, so we'll get that and uh, we'll get you back on the calendar, and so we can talk about uh, you know the the biological sciences versus the you know the. Well, how do you define the non-biological? Physical sciences. The physical sciences. There you go. We'll talk about the the differences there and uh, which one is better. Who's the champ? <laughs> Me. <but> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. She's put her foot down. All right. So uh, thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to uh, being on the air again. Thanks again, Lee. Thank you. All right. All right.